Great, thank you. Um, again, I apologize for my voice. I, I hope it's going to last the whole day. But um, maybe it'll force me to not be as talkative um, as I go through this interesting topic. Um, we do have some handouts, and uh, I'm going to circulate these around. There's a black and white text handout. And a few color pictures. I hope there are enough. Oh, I got to keep one for me. Here you go. Yeah. So, yeah, the handouts are the black and white with some text on it, suttas and a few neuroscience facts, and then some visuals that are mostly in color. There's one uh, black and white visual on the back of the three-page text handout, two-page text handout. Right. Please let me know if I'm not coming through sound-wise. Ooh. started. Is that too loud or is that okay? It's good. Great. So just a little bit more about my background and, and also thank you to the Saudi Center for inviting me and IMC for hosting this and especially to Tony for organizing it. Uh, not to mention his inexpressibly valuable Dharma teachings over the years in our Davis Sangha. Um, my background is, well, I'm trained as a physician um, and with, a spe- with specialty training in psychiatry, actually trained down the street at Stanford for my psychiatry residency. And I've been on the faculty at UC Davis for 33 years. <coughs> Excuse me. I've had a clinical practice treating primarily anxiety and depression. Uh, I've been teaching neuroscience, psychopharmacology, and psychotherapy, uh, and I've been doing uh, brain research uh, really since before I went to medical school, uh, over 40 years. And in the recent years with the, I mean, MRIs became available while I was in medical school, and uh, in the last 25 years or so, I've been doing brain imaging research um, and uh, my research is not about meditation it's about what goes wrong when people have ma- serious mental illnesses or psychiatric disorders 
I was, I've been exposed to Buddhism since uh, in high school. I felt a kinship with it when I first encountered it growing up in San Francisco in the 60s. I kind of got away from it during my formal education and trying to make tenure part of my career. But um, in the last 15 years, I've really been serious about studying it again uh, and had some excellent teachers. And I noticed, um, as I learned more about the Dharma, and uh, that <clears throat> it was really describing a lot of the same phenomena that neuroscience describes. And um, I, I started feeling like I was bilingual, like I would be at a at a scientific conference and listening to people describe some widget in the some functional circuit in the brain and I would think of it in Buddhist terms. <laughs> or I'd be at a Dharma talk hearing about, you know, an aspect of practice or an aspect of Buddhist psychology and I, I would just translate it into neuroscience terms. And uh, for me that was very rich. Uh, it really started to sort of accelerate my um, understanding of both fields, for actually, you know, and of course uh, Buddhism will be the focus today, but I have to say that my understanding of neuroscience has improved greatly from studying Buddhism. Uh, and, and what Buddhism provides, provided to me, and, and I think what neuroscience doesn't specialize in, is an overview of what the brain is really for. <laughs> you know, uh, the big picture of, of the human predicament. Buddhism really zeroes in on that. Uh, so, I, I'm going to sh sort of share with you the, these, this convergence between these two ways of investigating the mind. Uh, I don't mean to imply a materialistic model of the mind by appealing to the metaphors of neuroscience. Um, they're, they're useful models, but uh, they don't require a materialistic metaphysics. Um, <clears throat> So the Dharma practice um, embodies a way of, of, of understanding our experience of the world and responding to that experience um, that's unconventional. Uh, the Buddha sometimes uh, referred to this aspect of Dharma practice as going against the stream, patisotagami. And I think the stream that, the, that our Dharma practice takes us against is sometimes it's cultural, cultural norms, but it's also very biological. You know, we, we are these big-brained mammals that have been shaped by evolution, and we have built-in circuits that have been designed to help us survive long enough to reproduce. Uh, and some of the things that are built into us really... Um, aren't necessarily supporting our well-being in any sort of spiritual way. Uh, that, that's sort of kind of irrelevant to the forces of evolution. And so some of this practice is, is going against our instinctive streams uh, that have a different purpose. Uh, not in any way to put down the uh, remarkable qualities of the human brain and mind. Um, it's just that uh, sometimes it leads us into directions that aren't uh, for our best well-being. Um, 
Yeah. So we have these instinctive tendencies that shape how we perceive the world, what we care about in the world, and how we respond. Um, And sometimes uh, it causes us to be unhappy, you know, if we just respond from an instinctive place. I've put a a sutta from the Sutta Nipata on the first page of the handout. And if some kind person, keeping in mind my ragged voice, would mind reading it to the group, someone who has a healthy voice. Do you want me to start where? Just the sutta? Uh, yes, it should have the number one in front of it. All the suttas are numbered, or the, at least the Dharma quotes. And it's... Um, I don't have the black and white fear, handout. Fear is born. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing people locked in conflict... I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run, one settles down. If you observe people, you see lots of pointless conflict. (laughs) And uh, the Buddha saw this and he saw the thorn in the heart that provoked this way of responding to the world. And he talked about it in many ways, most often as craving. Um, But I sort of like his metaphor of the three roots of what is unskillful. And by unskillful, the Buddha means what does harm to oneself and others or others. And these three roots, sometimes called three fires or three poisons, <clears throat> are craving or reactive desire, hatred or reactive aversion, and delusion, or sometimes called ignorance, and I sometimes think of as distortion. Uh, and these these things are built into the mind because, uh, you know, it's not bad for a species to be violent at times and aggressive and reactive and instinctive if the purpose is just to reproduce and populate the globe. Um, <clears throat> and so what the Dharma... I sometimes think of the Dharma as a, a, set, a brilliant set of workarounds for the human predicament of being endowed with these instinctive tendencies and yet having this large brain that allows us to see alternatives. One of the ways the Buddha taught about um, improving this situation was in terms of the five aggregates, uh, the skandhas in Pali, or the con- uh, in Sanskrit, or the khandhas in Pali. That word means um, bundle or heap. The five aggregates are five aspects of our experience, uh, five different categories that, that uh, are bundles of roughly similar things that can be grouped into these five groupings. Um, and that's on the handout as well. And uh, I'm going to see if I can read them. Form or rupa in, pa- in Pali. 
Um, this, refers to, this refers to the body and the material world uh, as it interacts with our sense fields, what we know of the material world and our body. Feeling tone, the second one, called Vedana in Pali. This refers primarily to a basic sense of pleasant or unpleasant. It's what instinctively leads us to care one way or the other about things. This veil, psychologists call this valence, vedana, or feeling tone, or, or kind of hedonic tone. It's another way of conceptualizing it. Uh, perception, or sanya, or recognition, sanya in Pali. This refers to the way that our nervous system makes sense of what comes into our senses, uh, understands things, puts it together into meaningful patterns, perception. This is a particularly broad bundle or heap uh, among the aggregates because it includes things like just seeing that this is a bell and you know that's a water bottle and recognizing those basic perceptions, but also um, ideas and beliefs, uh, overarching schemes, schemata, um, themes in our life, uh, concepts, narratives, stories. All that would be in this category of sanya or perception, recognition. The fourth of the aggregates uh, sankara in Pali, often called uh, fabrication, but I like to call it intention or volition. That's the part of our experience that responds, that, that constructs behaviors, <laughs> creates speech, movements, postures, and um, you know builds skyscrapers. You know, the, doing, interacting with the world. Uh, it gives rise to our thoughts, speech, and actions. And then the fifth of the aggregates is vijnana, or consciousness, or awareness. And this is the essential process that uh, makes possible awareness of direct experience. Uh, in Generally speaking, all five of the aggregates are accessible to our conscious awareness. So um, these uh, categories from, the, from early Buddhism uh, encompass the immediacy of our experience as sentient beings. Um, and they're the domain where uh, craving and clinging and attachment occur. Uh, the domains, our responses to things among these five aggregates are what gives rise to our, our suffering and our unhappiness. In the early Buddhist suttas, they're described sometimes as just the aggregates, but more often as the aggregates susceptible to clinging. The susceptibility to clinging is how we respond to them. The aggregates themselves are not... uh, There's nothing wrong with the aggregates. It's just the way we respond to them evokes a clinging response, and that leads to suffering and unhappiness. And a key aspect of clinging uh, to the aggregates um, is identifying with them, making it mine, or or me, or I. And um, a big part of the early Buddhist teachings is to train our perception of these aggregates 
so that we can see that we add that identification to them as, as, um, as an unnecessary step and it, it can be optional. We don't need to identify with what arises in our experience. Um, and we'll go into that aspect of this more deeply uh, in later sessions, segments of the, these presentations. Um, it's been very helpful to me to learn about the aggregates uh, in part because it really, that set of phenomena that Buddha, that Buddha categorized like that into bundles, it really mirrors how neuroscientists categorize the phenomena of, of the human mind, of cognitive neuroscience. It really reads like the table of contents of a textbook of cognitive neuroscience. You have the senses, rupa and materiality and our sense organs. You have perception, you have feeling, <clears throat> you have the, the motor response system, how we organize and plan and create behavior. Uh, and then, uh, and I think, I don't know if I mentioned perception and all that, big part of the brain, and then, uh, of course, consciousness. Um, and so I'm going to go through these. Uh, I'm going to mainly focus on the middle three of the aggregates, um, Feeling tone, Vedana, Sanya, perception, and Sankara, intentions and volition. But I want to uh, sort of draw a line under intention, Sankara, volition, behavior, uh, from an evolutionary point of view. Uh, this is why we have brains. If you look around in, in the natural world, uh, the only place you see brains... <coughs> are in organisms that are capable of complex, complex movements, capable of complex behaviors. You don't see nervous systems in plants. They've got something going on, but it's really different. But animals, including the most primitive moving animals, like jellyfish, they have nervous systems. You have to have a nervous system to move. The nervous system evolved to support that adaptation for survival in the world. The nervous systems of jellyfish, they don't have a brain, they have more of a nerve net. But the nerves, they look, they're organized like ours. The architecture of the individual nerves is much like ours. It uses the same neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, glutamate, GABA, norepinephrine, acetylcholine, melatonin. Animal nervous systems are a template that hasn't changed that much since the beginning of the most primitive animals. And and what, shape, what makes that adaptive is that it allows the animal to move around in a way that they can eat, get food and reproduce and avoid predators. So these coordinated movements. So I say that because, you know, we, we have this commonality with, as human beings with other animals with less, with fewer bells and whistles attached to their nervous systems. We have this tremendous nervous system. We have this... Uh, type of consciousness that allows us to really understand our world more so than most other creatures and manipulate it in sophisticated ways. And that's a cool thing. Uh, our perceptions, our knowledge, our understanding, but really evolution is mainly concerned about how those embellishments have shaped our behavior. And we've been very adaptive up to this point. Um, and so I just wanted point to intention as critical from a biological point of view. And, and I think in the Dharma, Sankara, intention, uh, 
is also really important. Um, I mean, I, I like to think um, that the fruit of the Buddhist path is a transformation of how intentions and action arise in our minds. And I, I like the quote from the Zen master Yun-men, who when asked, uh, uh, in his later years, when asked, what is the purpose of a life of Dharma practice? He said, an appropriate response, an appropriate response. When our, intent, when our tra- intentions have been transformed, that's when the benevolent qualities that are a potential in human beings really come out. Uh, there's the teaching of the Brahma Viharas, uh, generosity, doing not, not doing harm, kindness and compassion, equanimity. But Im- important as intentions are, they're certainly conditioned by our perceptions, our understandings of the world, the feelings that arise in us, how we care about things. So I'm going to focus on all three of those. Um, Perception, feeling, which which I, in my mind, I call it evaluation or putting value on things, good, bad, pleasant, unpleasant. Perception, evaluation, and uh, intention. Now this... um, these three, this triad, which are always interacting in a living brain of any animal, uh, is evident in the anatomy of our brains, both at a macroscopic level, if you just look at the big pieces of the brain and how they're segregated, how they're organized, where they are inside our brain case, and then also at a microscopic level, if you look at uh, the cellular organization of the brain. And, and so um, the, the first color picture on the upper left here, that has the blue frontal cortex, light blue, and uh, the, just the uncolored posterior cortices. Um, in general, the front part of the cerebral cortex, a big part of our brain, is mostly involved with behaving, with, with generating intentions and executing them, carrying them out. And the back part of the cortex is mostly involved with making sense of experience, perceiving, recognizing, generating narratives and stories. From the simplest level of seeing little things, you know, little features in the world to the most complicated scenarios that we construct to make sense of it. So uh, this is not 100%. There There are exceptions to this general rule, but far and away most of the behavior and intention is in the frontal cortex, and the perception is in the posterior cortices. The, um, the occipital cortex in the way back is the primary visual area. But vision occupies 40% of the entire cortex. So it also occupies the temporal lobe, which comes along the lower side of the brain, where hearing and memory have primary circuitry, but also vision, because so much of our inner world is visual. And then the parietal cortex along the top back of the brain where we have body senses, somatic sensation, taste. We also have a lot of vision in the parietal cortex as well. So on the cortex we see a segregation of intention and perception. If you look at the middle of the brain, this is the picture with colored blobs just to the right. 
This is a slice through the middle of a human brain. It's just a little sketch. Um, and you can see the low down parts, the brain stem in the lower right, and then uh, the cerebral cortex sit, sitting on top of it, uh, and in between some subcortical regions. These midline regions are specialized for generating feeling tone, for, for um, uh, creating the conditions that cause the animal or the human to care about what's happening in one way or another. Um, and this is, these are some of the most primitive parts of our brain. Uh, <clears throat> there is a couple of little dotted arrows. I apologize for all the detail here, and please don't feel like you need to read or understand the names of these structures. I just put them there because I use this slide for my medical school lectures too. Um, but the idea is that it's the, feeling, the specialization for feeling tone is segregated to this ancient midline part of the brain. It's the part that develops first in the embryo. And as you know, um, the development of, the, of, the, of an individual in, through embryological development recapitulates the development of the species. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. When a human infant begins to form, its nervous system starts out like a fish and becomes like an amphibian and then a reptile and finally a mammal. Birds were off to the side. We don't go through a bird phase. <laughs> this is, these are the earliest, these midline regions, especially the lower midline regions, are the most ancient parts of our nervous system, which makes sense because our feelings have that kind of primal you know, quality to them. Right, so uh, perception, evaluation, and intention they're segregated in the brain at a macroscopic level. They're also, and yet they have to work together for us to behave. They're also uh, separately identifiable at a cellular level. The next picture in the lower uh, left, uh, in the middle left, I'm sorry, which is um, a microscopic, sort of microscopic view of a slice through the cerebral cortex, which has six layers. Uh, and so the cortex is the part out here, and if you slice, if you cut down through it and then look at it, this is like less than an inch, it's not very thick. This is the gray matter. If you slice through it, you see these layers. Um, <clears throat> a six-layered cortex is probably the single most defining feature of a mammal. Uh, there are mammals that lay eggs, um, you know, there are there are other creatures that nurse their, not nurse, but feed their young that aren't mammals. But the most distinctive thing about mammals is they have a six-layered cortex. That's where we diverged from the reptiles. And the birds didn't go that direction. Birds have three-layered cortex. They're, they're very smart, but it's a different architecture for their intelligence. Um, but even the most primitive duck-billed platypus uh, has this same six-layered cortex. And the, the circuitry of this uh, is being sort of unpacked in modern neuroscience, although there's a lot of things that aren't known about how this circuitry works. One thing, though, is that the functional unit of the cortex is probably something called a cortical column, which is a cylindrical column that goes from the bottom level, layer six, level six, up to the top uh, layer, layer one. Uh, it's just a little, it has about a hundred cells in it, and there are 
millions of these throughout the cortex. Um, and that is the calculating unit of the cortex. So a single cell is not really, um, it's not going to contribute much to what the brain is doing. It's these clusters organized in, in these vertical columns that work together. That's the, the unit of computation in the cerebral cortex. And every one of these columnar units is like a, the transistor, you know, it's the equivalent of a transistor in your cortex. Maybe that's not a good analogy. I don't really know electrical engineering that well. But um, every one of these cortical columns has a, a particular, has an input to it. And that input is where perceptual information enters this column. And it always is in layer four. And so I put a little red arrow there showing perceptual input into layer four. And all, every one of these columns has an output where behavior or an inclination to act in a certain way, to move your muscles in a certain way or your voice or whatever, or you make your glands work in a certain way. These, the behavioral output always comes from layer five. Layers two, and now th- these have been the most clearly mapped because they, layer four enters, the perception comes into the cortex from lower areas, from our senses. And uh, layer five, behavioral output, leaves the cortex. It goes down to the nuclei that control our movements. So they've been easy to map, and they're pretty well understood. And they're the same in all mammals. Uh, Layers two and three are more complicated, and they're particularly complicated in human because that's how the cortical regions talk to each other. Um, I, I believe layer two talks to other cortical regions on the same hemisphere, and layer three crosses the to the, the opposite hemisphere to, to carry on a conversation with those processing modules. Um, layer six has a completely different function. It has to do with sort of letting the rest of the brain know what this part is doing in, in a um, coordinated fashion through the thalamus. But all six layers, and I have some little green arrows on the right, all six layers get input from these primitive feeling regions in the brain stem, the, the primitive part of the brain. Uh, the, the feeling qualities influence all the calculations in the cortex. Um, it, it might not hurt to, to say that... Uh, See, there's another sort of structural feature I'd like to point out, and I will leave some time for questions uh, because I imagine there will be some. Um, uh, actually, let me just point out the, the little uh, diagram I have to the right of the six-layered cortex, where I have perceiving, intending, and evaluating, running around, chasing each other around in a circle, and Sanya, Vedana, and Sankara. Because I just want to make the point that. In the Buddhist teaching on the aggregates, we can consider them separately for the purposes of observing our mind and our experience. But they're never separate. They're always interacting. And this is, this is undeniable when you look at the circuitry of the brain. The, the functional output of these tiniest calculating units require all three of these in order to function. So I, I, I will talk about them separately, but I just want to say... They're not separate. <laughs> They're only separate in our concepts, in our maps. In, in any meaningful way, they work together. 
The other sort of structural feature is that um, the vertebrate brain, this includes fish, reptiles, mammals, birds, etc., has three mini-brains in it. Um, hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain. Um, and a fish, and most amphibians, they're mostly hindbrain. Um, and then uh, with, with amniotes, the, the vertebrates that learned how to reproduce without needing to be in water, so reptiles, birds, and mammals, they really started developing the forebrain. Um, but all three brains, the hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain, have the capacity to regulate our, an animal's behavior. Uh, so the fish, which is mostly hindbrain, can perceive and recognize things, know how to feel about it for their, in an appropriate way for their species, and then respond and emit a behavior. The midbrain, which is a little more sophisticated, a later development, sits on top, has some regulatory control over the hindbrain, has the same abilities. Uh, and it's sort of, there's this um, sharing of, of responsibilities. The hindbrain is particularly good at, in mammals, you know, breathing and making, regulating your cardiovascular system, these visceral functions. The midbrain is a little more important at, you know, um, primitive behavioral patterns. And then the forebrain, which developed last, has become very sophisticated. It also has everything it needs to regulate the animal's behavior. And these three regions negotiate among themselves for who's going to be in charge of a particular situation. So there's a, it's, not, it's a friendly competition, um, but um, there's a redundancy here. Um, you can even, in early experiments trying to understand the brain, they would remove the forebrain from a laboratory mammal, and it would still behave, you know, it, just very primitively. Mostly the way that the relationship between these three brain regions is organized is with the higher regions having um, breaks that it can apply to the lower regions and having the capacity to govern the lower regions. Um, and that's certainly the case with us. Um, although uh, there are circumstances, especially when Vedana is strong, when feeling tone is really intense, this biases the system so that the lower regions uh, are harder to break. They're, 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 and in emergency situations, speaking of braking, I mean, if you're driving on the freeway and you, something happens right in front of you, you start stopping your car before your forebrain knows what you're doing. Um, <clears throat> so when things are, when the message is, this is really important, then the more primitive parts of the system will kick in because they're faster. They have fewer, they do fewer calculations, they're just faster. Okay. Yeah. So the, the remarkable thing about being a human being is that we have a capacity, we have a, the most highly developed capacity to govern these more instinctive qualities in our nervous system. Um, and you know, the Buddha said, he wouldn't teach us this path of overcoming suffering, overcoming the three unskillful roots, if it weren't possible for us to do it. And our architecture, I think, really does make it possible to do this. So I think maybe I'll stop there and see if there are questions.
maybe you plan to get to this. Um, but one question I've had in recent years as I think about uh, moving toward enlightenment and how that actually works in our brain, um, I see how fear and anger, avoidance, uh, how we evolved to have those abilities in order to survive. But as you hinted at, um, I don't see necessarily how our ability, how, how letting go and refraining leads to such tremendous happiness. Evolution, in terms of evolutionary biology, do you know why we're capable, why that happens? No. <laughs> no need to elaborate. Thanks. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Thanks. Um, I wonder if you can just review... Uh, what I think you were saying is that there's a correspondence between each of the aggregates and a part of the brain. Did I understand that correctly? Generally, that, yes. So the frontal cortex is mostly behavior, so that kind of mostly relates to what you're calling Sankara. Right. Tension. And then the midline is the Vedana. Yes. And then, um, I'm just trying to just understand it. So the, um, the, where would Vijnana be? The consciousness. consciousness. Yeah. Right. Well, um, <clears throat> You know, I'm not going to talk that much about consciousness, be, in, in part because I don't think neuroscience has much to say about it yet. Uh, it's an area of active research. and that, You know, we know something about it, but not really the whole story about it. It's not r- probably localized. Um, there, are, there are important regions for consciousness in the brainstem. Fish, are, in my view, are conscious in the sense of phenomenal consciousness. They feel pain. They don't have what philosophers call access consciousness, where they, you know, like write books and things, um, where they manipulate symbols in an abstract way and see themselves abstractly. They have phenomenal consciousness, and that—that's in the brainstem and the thalamus. Those are the two key areas for an animal to be conscious, or at least for a human being to be conscious. But, but it—it's an integrated thing. It involves many parts of the brain, and it. <clears throat> Think of it as a, um, a sort of a, the desktop of consciousness, and it, it's different content can be brought to it or removed from it, and it's limited at least to access consciousness. The sophisticated, more uniquely human consciousness is a limited capacity. You can only put so many things on the desktop, and certain kinds of content can't ever really get to the desktop. Probably other things get there easily, especially language-based things more embodied experiences, uh, you have to pay more attention to bring them into consciousness. Okay. Thank you. Yes. I want to ask about the layers of the cortex. I want to ask about the layers of the cortex. I had thought that that was analogous to a neural network, so it was hierarchical. There was kind of lots of inputs at the bottom, and they got winnowed down, and then they came out at the top. But that sounds like it's... No. The layers of the cortex aren't like the layers of a neural network. No. There's similar, there some <clears throat> similar logic to having these little units work together. 
but the architecture is different. It's not hierarchical. It's not hierarchical. Hi. Hi. Um, I read that the you can map a decision before we actually have behavior. When those three layers of brain, they have friendly competition and they work together. Where in that can we, let's say, surprise our brain by overriding that decision that uh, the consciousness thinks we're going to do and then stopping and doing something else? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I will talk about that in some detail when we talk about intention and decisions and choice. So uh, I think maybe I'll just hold... Uh, I promise I will cover that. <coughs> yeah. Um, one of the metaphors that I've heard for practice is the um, the planting seeds, you know, watering the seeds that you want to have sprout, not watering the unskillful seeds that you don't want to have sprout, like greed, anger, and delusion. And I'm wondering... Um, how much we know about the biology of if we decline to water certain seeds, like let's say more specific seeds, like a certain sankara, like an intention that's not so much like biologically in everyone, but my specific negative intention from my specific experiences in my little brain. How much can we eventually transform some of that stuff and how much is it just lays dormant because we don't activate it anymore? Does that question make sense? I, well, it made sense to me, but I'm not sure I understand what you meant. Um, <laughs> I mean, I understand something. Is what you mean <laughs> when we have a negative habit, let's say, of, of behaving or fe- uh, of intending, and we work on overcoming it? Does it really go away, or do we just get better at um, governing it? Is that is that yes. your question? Yes. Because that I, I can answer. Um, awesome. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, it, it's sort of. I'm not sure how it maps onto the Dharma, but I can tell you in neuroscience terms, the most widely studied example of this is fear conditioning, which you can do in the laboratory to almost any animal. If you show it something that for that their species is neutral, like a picture of a green circle, and then give an electric shock to its tail, it will learn to fear the green circle because it's been paired with the shock. So... Um, that teaches a fear, you know, a negative reaction, aversion. And then you can extinguish the fear. And this is sort of a little model of what people experience when they react negatively. The animal can learn to stop reacting to it if you show it that you're not going to shock it anymore. With the, every time you show the green circle, it learns not to react. But it, it never forgets the green circle made it, gave it pain and under cer- certain circumstances stress uh, um, you can see that that memory is still there the, and the memory never goes away what happens is a more sophisticated governing circuit gets built to prevent that memory from governing the animal's behavior so do we know it still exists because we can measure something like its adrenaline goes up even if it doesn't run away? Like how do we know it still remembers and is still on some level able to be afraid of this stimulus? Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to remember how we know this. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Let's see. I don't think it's microscopically. It, it's, it's a consensus 
finding in th these fear conditioning studies that um, there's no disagreement about this. I can't remember why people are so convinced. I think it's because under certain circumstances, even like if you fear condition a rat when it's very young, an adolescent rat, and then you extinguish it, then you let it have a completely unperturbed life until it's in its last months of life, and then put it under the right conditions, you can show that it still there's still a trace of that fear conditioning in its behavior. I can't remember how they know this. Well, well it makes sense if you can reactivate it. Then well, you can oh yeah, no, I thought of another way. Yeah, they know what part of the brain has learned to um, turn that off. And if they go in and put that part of the brain to sleep temporarily with a drug, they just drip some drug on those on that little cluster of cells that turned off the fear conditioning. The fear conditioning is still there. So the way it works in the brain is we don't get rid of our some of our bad habits, we, especially the ones that are very instinctive, like fear conditioning. But we build a, we build something that contains them successfully. I'm just wondering if it's uh, held in some cells in some parts of the body and and it remembers and. I'm sorry, I, I missed the first part of that. I'm just wondering if the memory is held in the cells in the body somewhere. Yes. Yes. Well, and there, it's held in the cells, especially in where they touch other cells in the brain. The connections between nerve cells called synapses uh, are constantly being remodeled. And it's the the strength of the connections of certain patterns that represent memories. Go ahead. So it's, it's about the, the five aggregates when, <clears throat> when you are showing the more structure of the brain, you are kind of showing that they work together, that it's not really separate, but... Uh, my understanding of of practice meditation it feels like we are learning to separate them to make sense of it is is this what we're doing in yes, essence i think so that's how i view it yeah yeah we can focus on one mm -hmm. <sighs> like we realize that you know something happens and there is a feeling tone to it and then there is the uh, um, recognition of what's happening and kind of like the, then you have a choice to, to respond. Like we're kind of like it feels like in my meditation I'm, I'm trying to separate them so I can understand why um, or prevent myself from being reactive because they're all kind of like meshed together or have a, a deeper understanding of what's happening when I separate them through meditation. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's the reason for the teaching, is, is that it helps us see and understand what the mind is doing by having these, conce these concepts uh, to help us map it. Um. But it's also very empowering to change behavior because once I realize that you know 
the feeling tone to this experience is negative, it gives me a lot of information on why I'm, I'm inclined to do this. Um, it's fascinating. Yes. Thank yeah. you. There was a question there. So I, I recently read a book called My Stroke of Insight, uh-huh. where a neuroanatomist had a massive stroke yes. uh, in the left hemisphere around the um, temporal uh, region. And it was interesting. She reported her experience afterwards, obviously in the book, about like what the stroke was like. And uh, it sounded a lot like uh, a present mindful awareness, like the kind of thing that we're kind of like trying to develop during formal meditation practice. And she attributed it to like how the right side of your brain processes information. But I noticed you didn't actually make any distinction between left and right in your introduction. So I was curious if you could comment. I, w- I will. In, in, after the break, I'll be talking about uh, perception, and then I'll get into that ways that the left and the right hemisphere make sense for the world differently. That's an important distinction. And yet they're both Sanya, Vedana, and Sankara in both hemispheres. And the hemispheres, so, like the forebrain and the midbrain and the highbrain, the left and the right hemisphere are in a friendly competition, or not, sometimes not that friendly. Um, they both can do everything, but they have different specialties. Yeah. So I'm curious if you're going to bring this into the day at some point. Um, I'm kind of curious about dependent origination, the cycle. And in that cycle, um, contact, you know, the sense, the sense doors... Um, at that point, Vedna arises. So in, in terms of your weaving that, a little, you know, instead of the aggregates per se, is, that similar, is there a similar kind of neuroscience component to the dependent origination? Um, you know, I, I haven't m- mapped that particular teaching as... Um, Carefully onto neuroscience, although you know it's kind of a lot of the same ideas are independent origination, and uh, you know I won't be talking much about contact, which is really more the sense doors. Um, and this, I, I think there's something there. I just won't be developing that today. Well, if, why don't we take a break and come back in ten minutes? <laughs>